Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. Command and teach these things. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Grace be with you all. Many of you have seen and maybe hopefully even used this diagram before that's going to come up here on the screen uh, that kind of illustrates the gospel. It kind of illustrates the fact that there's no way that you're getting to God uh, apart from something other than the supernatural work of Christ. It shows us on one side, God on the other, sin between the two. And it's, it's really simple and it's a great way to illustrate the gospel. And so you kind of introduce to them the cross and the fact that the only thing that can bridge this chasm between us and God and the fact that our, our sin leads to death and only through Jesus Christ and faith in him can we have peace with God, can we be forgiven of our sin, can we have eternal life. The only downside, I think, of the, the graph the, the, using this chart is oftentimes it just focuses on what Christianity does for us in eternity, doesn't really emphasize what the, that life, eternal life begins now. But it's a great illustration. I've used it all the time. But one thing that, as 1 Corinthians 1.23 on the screen points out to you, that many times people, once they hear about Jesus, once they hear about the cross, once they hear about following Christ, putting, giving their life to Christ, the cross becomes a stumbling block to them. It, it seems stupid. It seems folly is the word that's used in the ESV. It's, it's just foolishness. This is foolishness. Jesus died on a cross so that I could have salvation, so I could know God and have peace with God. I just can't buy into that. And some people, as Scripture says, will get hung up on the fact that the cross doesn't make sense to them. That's what Scripture says. What should not happen is the following illustration is the fact that many times, before we even get to the cross with someone, we as the church individually collectively can become a barrier for people seeing the gospel, seeing the cross. Because we live our lives in a way that isn't an accurate representation of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so we allow our lives to be cluttered up and full of sinful behavior. And a lot of times we don't call it sinful behavior because it, we, we want to justify it through calling it other things other than sin. But anything that comes between us and God in our relation with Christ is a sin, and those things become a barrier for people coming to Christ. And this is why, as we work through the book of 1 Timothy, and as Timothy has received these instructions from Paul on how to choose leaders in the church to accurately represent Jesus Christ to that community, he did not focus on some of the things that most of the time we look for in leaders. Instead, he goes to character. Paul focuses again and again on character because character is what God values. That's what matters 
us to God, and I'm not sure that we always do. We look to big personalities, we look to big money, we look to great looks, or someone who can get us big results, even in the church world. And that is not the type of leaders that God looks for. God looks for men and women of character. And so I'm getting a little bit of a ring back here, Reed, if you can, I don't know if you can make an adjustment on that or not. Um, but we have allowed much damage to come to the church and to uh, our, our reputation because we get hung up on the things that the Bible says we shouldn't be concerned about when it comes to leadership. We need to focus in on character, what God focuses in on, and the other stuff will come. And so today in this passage, Paul's going to continue to instruct Timothy on some issues in the church and this is going to be a two-week kind of conversation on something that we would not normally spend two weeks on, which is on taking care of widows, because in our society, it's not near as critical as it was during that time. But in this conversation today, I want to kind of focus in on the, the, the side of the conversation, as Paul's writing to Timothy, is the danger in this idea that we can pick people who are leaders who are after Power, who can be corrupted by power, by sex, or by money. And so we'll see this in the passage today. And I think it's timely that we look at this as today we vote on our church leaders. We vote on affirming new leaders and also those leaders who their terms are come to an end and we're going to reaffirm them this morning after the service. And so as we talk about leadership, character matters and what we do as a church matters greatly. So let's go to our text. 1 Timothy chapter 5 will be in verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 7. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives." Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word that gives us truth. We thank you for the way that you steer us into conversations, to messages that we might not normally spend time on, because you know that we have a tendency to just run after the things that seem to be most relevant to our lives and God, the most relevant thing we can do is to know your scripture, know each verse of your word, and make proper, proper application to ourselves and also to, to our church family. And God, I pray that today we might do that, that we might understand this passage and how it speaks to us and how that we can more accurately represent you. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned over and over again that the church is called the body of Christ. We talk about that a lot, the body of Christ. And I think that we use that metaphor so many times that it loses its power. The fact that we are literally looked at as the hands and feet of Christ. That when something gets done in this world, most of the time, 99.99999% of the time, we as the body of Christ 
are the ones that reach out our hands, move our feet to make it happen. Yes, God supernaturally intervenes. But the standard way that things happen is the fact that God moves his people to be his hands and feet, therefore his body, the body of Christ. A healthy body brings glory to God. A dysfunctional church brings shame to the name of Jesus. And so Paul was instructing Timothy on how to deal properly with people within the church so that we can be a healthy church that accurately represents him. Well, the first abuse that we see potentially that can happen among particularly church leaders here is right here in verse 1 that church leaders can abuse power. Church leaders can abuse power. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. And this Greek word for rebuke here is very unique. In fact, this is the only time this particular word is used in the New Testament, this word that's used for rebuke. Rebuke's used a lot in the New Testament, but this is a very careful choice of a word that Paul uses here. And it's unique because it gives us this image of to strike or to beat up someone. And so what Paul is telling Timothy is that he is to be careful in his relationship with the older men in the church and not to go and attack them, beat them up verbally, but he says to encourage them. So it's this idea of a leader who's full of himself, full of power, who goes to somebody in the church and begins to attack that person verbally, beating them up with guns blazing, acting like the leader, I'm somebody important, and I have a right to do this. Now, let's be clear. A pastor, an elder, is obligated to rebuke those who are sinful, but they're to rebuke them in a different manner other than this manner that Paul is pointing out here in this unique word, which is to go in with guns blazing. In fact, Titus 2.15 says, rebuke with all authority. So he's talking to Titus, he says, rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. And actually, just a few verses later, we won't get to this today, I'll read it today. In 1 Timothy 5.20, he says, As for those who persist in sin, Timothy, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. All right? So rebuke in the presence of all, like in the community, in the church gathering, so that there will be fear. So this is using power for sure, but it's the proper use of power, not a bullying running over destroying someone through their ability to use power in this situation. So Paul's desire is for Timothy and all pastors and elders to serve people, to serve people, not to lord over people. So Paul is cautioning Timothy about abusing power. And abusing power, plain and simple, it's a sin. And there are times in the life of the church where an elder or pastor needs to confront someone, plain and simple. If someone's behavior or someone's thinking is out of line with Scripture, they must be rebuked. Why? Because false ideas are destructive, false attitudes and bad attitudes are destructive and contagious, and they spread throughout a church. And so if you allow sin to start to fester among groups in the church, it's not long before that's contagious, and more and more people jump on that bandwagon. Confrontation is extremely difficult. Nobody, I think, likes to do it, especially do it in the proper way. 
Back when I was a youth pastor in Dallas, we had a gentleman who was one of our elders. His name was Kent. And Kent was, to put it mildly, was really a pain to the senior pastor in our church. He really was. He was probably 15 years older than our senior pastor. And all I ever saw from our senior pastor, who some of you who have been here for a while, this was Jeff Innigenberg's uncle. And even though he wasn't exactly like Jeff, he had a very similar spirituality about him. He was very careful how he dealt with people. And, and Dennis tried his best to deal with Kent in a, in, a, in a loving, patient manner. But Kent was hung up on some silly stuff, honestly. I mean, true story, when I was in my interview with this church and the elders, and we were in a big circle in a room, throughout the interview process, Kent would get up and walk over and pick up dirt off the floor, little specks of, of trash, and put it in his hand. And in a few minutes, he'd, he'd walk over and grab another piece, pick it up, and, and put it in his hand. And he did that throughout the meeting, all right? That's the kind of guy we're dealing with here. He's a guy who told me later on, he said, I left a roach over in the corner of this room because I wanted to see if Manuel, who was our, uh, he was our guy who cleaned our church every week, if Benwell would spot this roach. And it's been there for like three months now. All right? And so, and so he was a pain to deal with. He was. He was hard to deal with. But the problem was, in his mind, he thought he was being a responsible steward to the ministry. He thought that he was doing his job. And that's what's so tough about confrontation because inevitably, people are self-deceived and they have worked up this system that is anti-biblical, but they think it's biblical in their own mind where they feel completely justified to be doing the things that they're doing. And when you go to someone in confrontation, oftentimes it only gets worse because these people are not walking with God like they think they are, and they respond differently than they should respond. And oftentimes what inevitably happens is that the pride of the situation, some people will show it right off the bat and be defensive. Other people, they need a chance to kind of sit on this for a while, and then they go home, and it begins to just like simmer, and the anger comes out later, or they talk to the spouse, and their spouse eggs them on, like, who are they to think they're doing that, saying that to you? And it becomes this awful situation, and oftentimes the person who came to try to do the rebuke, to try to deal with the situation, they're turned into the one who is the evil person, and their hurt feelings, the person's hurt feelings, are more important than the truth that they were trying to establish in the first place. And so Paul gives like extremely practical information here to Timothy. He says, when you go to this older person, to this older person, maybe because of various issues in that society that you looked up to men who were older, but also the fact that Timothy was just out of line if he was to go with guns blazing into these confrontations. He says, Go to this person as you would go to your own beloved father. The way that you would go to your father who is older, obviously, and, and, and you love him and you care and you had to bring some difficult truth, you go to this older man within the congregation as you would to your own beloved father to deal with him, to encourage him, not to rebuke, but to encourage. And the word encourage here has the, the imagery, which Paul uses a lot in his, in his letters, of uh, athletics, a coach or a trainer doing their best to build up the player, 
to help them be stronger and better, not to beat them down and make them demoralized. That's why I've never coached girls, all right? I just couldn't do it because I, I found, uh, you know, like girls shut down when I scream at them, right? And, and guys oftentimes will respond and they'll be like, oh, I can, I can do better. And, and, and you need someone like Lance, right, being the coach who's, who's so patient and, and loving and, and, and with, with the girls. And, and so the idea here is the same. It's this athletic metaphor to go to build up. Let me help strengthen you and strengthen your game and improve you and make you stronger and better because it's going to contribute to the, the, the success of the team versus the other side. You destroy this person and, and you get nothing out of it. The church isn't edified through this at all. And so he says, go and encourage. And he says, you encourage the younger men as you would a brother. Now, this is interesting because I didn't ever really encourage my brother in a, in a good way, right? I mean, when we encouraged, we encouraged this way. But obviously, this is a picture of adult children, maybe, who want to encourage each other. And you go and you have to confront or rebuke. And you do it in a way that is encouraging to that person as you would go to your own brother. And then verse 2, he says, confront or go to or rebuke in the, in the proper way older women as you would your mother. Think of a conversation with this person as you're going to your very mother to sit down and have this difficult conversation. And then he says also the younger women, you go to them as sisters. And so you see this so practical dynamic that's going on into, in, in, in the church. It's, it, Paul say, says that these things that can be true this rebuke that Timothy could go and give in a way that would not be encouraging to someone, it could be truth, but if it's not done in a loving manner, an encouraging manner, it's not going to get the results that you hope to get, it's not going to build up the body, and it's not, definitely not going to reflect well on the, on the body of Christ. John Stott writes, Leaders have power, but power is safe only in the hands of those who humble themselves to serve. And we've come across, all of us, many pastors and leaders in the name of Jesus who are egomaniacs, who are bullies, who come across in a way that their pride shines through and it damages the community, it hurts the community. And many times, unfortunately, churches give this person a pass. Why? It goes to back to what I was saying earlier, the fact that we value performance oftentimes over character. How many times have I heard this growing up in very legalistic churches? But look at the results this guy is getting for the kingdom of God. All right, we can overlook his sin because he's getting results. And so many times, leaderships in, in a community accepts what they should not accept. They're silent on what they should speak out about, and they're passive about what they should be acting on because they value the things that they should not value. And they don't value what God values, which is character. So the potential abuse of power. The second one, Church leaders can abuse purity. Look back at verse 2. He says, rebuke or go to and encourage younger women as sisters in all purity. In all purity. Paul was intentional in putting those three words behind that expression. This wasn't just, let me add some more words here. Because the potential here is for church leaders to fail in this area of purity. And through the Holy Spirit's leading, Paul added this because he knew for Timothy and he knew for all who were in a spiritual authority, there was a potential danger for pastors and church leaders to fail to remain pure in relationships. I read about a prominent evangelical leader 
who keeps a running list of all his seminary friends who have fallen into this type of sin. And he says the list is very long. And he says with this list, he keeps a list of all the things he would destroy should he ever give in to that temptation. Family, friends, and the trust of thousands of people he has shepherded over the years. It's a real danger. And in fact, as I was thinking through this over the last couple of weeks, Grace Church, before my time, but Grace Church, this has impacted this body in the past several times in devastating and difficult ways. Our staff right now, we're reading a book, we're, I think we're in chapter 5 or 6 this week. Each, each week, a different pastor takes a different chapter, and it's called Dangerous Calling. And it's specifically for pastors. And it's to be mindful of the fact that we can be giving and serving and ministering at the same time being lazy and slothful in our own lives. And so there's a reason why Timothy is cautioned. And why this caution is for us as well, because this happens and can happen, and it does happen all the time. And sometimes it happens to people that you least expect it. One of my favorite teachers in Bible college was a man named Mike Course. And Mike would come in for special Bible teaching times at our Bible college. And this guy was an author. He pastored the Church of the Open Door in Los Angeles. He was a very successful megachurch pastor. He was a chorus, maybe you realize that's a Greek name. He, he's a Greek scholar. Many people went to him because he was kind of an authority in that. And so, man, I loved sitting under his teaching. He, he, he went through 1 John, and, and I remember just taking notes and just really, really gleaming so much from his talk. Well, a couple years after I graduated, it came to light that Mike chorus had had an affair going on for years. In fact, when he taught me in Bible college, he had this affair with somebody in his church going on, even at that time. And so appearances and even biblical knowledge does not guarantee that someone will not fall into these type of sins. And Paul warns Timothy, and he reminds him, you need to be above reproach. Because he's aware, as Timothy, as he's ministering to people, oftentimes this Ministry may be misinterpreted as some sort of, you know, wow, this guy really likes me. Or this person give me a lot of attention that I don't get at home. And so there's a potential there. there and, and, and obviously there's a warning throughout Scripture, and, 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 and we can infer it here, that Timothy was to be above reproach. He was never to be flirtatious. He was never ever to act inappropriately in these relationships. So we guard our hearts and we guard our minds, and Timothy is told to treat women with the same demeanor, the same respect that he would treat his own flesh and blood sister. And so if you grab hold of that, and you say, this is the way I'm going to live through God's power and God's strength, wow, the church would have been saved from so many scandals, so much embarrassment, so much heartache and broken families, and the name of Jesus being brought down because of these scandals that go on all the time. And then the third one, we see that church leaders can abuse provision or resources. I had to keep the P's thing going there, right? Provision or resources. Look at verse 3. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. And so what do you, what's he getting at there? How does this fit in? Well, 
The fact is, as people, just like today, they give to a ministry, they give to a church, then the leadership has to decide how to use those funds in the best way that glorifies God. And so this is one example from this passage of Scripture here that how that leaders were not using wisdom when they were dispersing this money out to these widows. And we know that people, including ourselves, can be so greedy and love money so much that we can work a system, and we see it all the time, and we can be guilty of it because we can be enticed by it as well. And so similar today, as the support was going into the church coffers, that the leadership had to decide how they were best going to spend this. And look down in verse 5 and 6. We'll come back to verse 4 in a second. He, he differentiates between those who are truly widows and those who are false, fake widows. He says in verse 5, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So a true widow is all alone. She has no family support whatsoever. She has to completely rely upon God through the provision of his body, the church. And as we, as the church body, are commissioned to care, then there's wisdom that's involved in identifying between the true widow and the widow who's false. And so he points out in verse 6, the false widow in this congregation, she is, but she is self-indulgent, and she's dead even while she lives. So this lady, these ladies in this church who are widows, technically, they're self-indulgent. I think the, the scripture lends to the fact that they're unscrupulous, they're, they're not above reproach for sure, and they're taking advantage of the church's resources. Now, a little bit of historical background here to help us understand how this may have happened and how the, the elders, the leaders of the church, may have been unwise in dis, uh, distributing this to the elders, I mean, to, I'm sorry, to the widows, is the fact that the provision for the care for widows is deeply rooted in Jewish Christian tradition. Jewish people understood God's care and concern for widows. God himself is understood to defend the widow. Immediately following the fifth commandment in Genesis, God says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Exodus 22, 22 and 23. In Deuteronomy, God says, I execute justice for the fatherless and the widow. So Jewish culture understood its duty to care for widows. And so in this early church culture that's going on, Christianity is taking its roots, it's exploding out. And in this culture, people are coming to Jesus. And as a result of coming to Jesus, many people are losing all their family support. They're losing, their, their family just turns and walks away from them. And they have nothing. They're not even able oftentimes to be employed because of their commitment to Christ. And there's no state organized welfare. There's no social security. There's no food stamps. And so in the early church, they had to step up and provide for those who were at risk, those who had no provision, nothing that they could live off of. And so the church took its responsibility to widows very, very seriously. But with that, you had these people who were, again, technically widows, who were coming and mooching off the church, taking off the church, living off the church, but they were taking advantage of the situation. And I can see it. The church elders sitting around and they're saying, well, we're supposed to take care of widows and she's a widow or her husband's dead. We should do that, right? 
Those are hard decisions to make. Those are difficult to know who to help and who not to help because people take advantage all the time of others. And so there's wisdom here to be involved in this process. And so Paul lays it out for Timothy. He's like, they're sinful people, plain and simple. These women are sinful and they're spiritually dead, meaning they're not even believers. They're not even truly in Christ, but yet you're distributing funds to them when not only are they not even believers, but they have other people who should be taking care of them. Look at verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own households and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So he's saying there's no point in enrolling these people who claim to be, I mean, who are widows who claim to need it because they're taking advantage of you. What you need to do is you need to send them back to their children or send them to their grandchildren and let them take care of that person. It's not your job as a church to use the provision, use the resources in a way that's not glorifying to God. And so these widows needed to seek this help from their own family. And so in this passage today, and we'll continue on this talk on widows next week, but in this talk we see the same things that are abused today were abused back then. Power, sex, and money. And many, many of us have been guilty at some time in our life replacing our love for God for the love of these things. And it's so subtle, like I said. Nobody gets confronted, normally says, you got me, I'm, you're right. We have developed a system of self-justification where we think what we're doing is not just fine, but maybe even God approves of it. I've dealt with many, many couples where one of the people in the relationship some way justified their affair because their spouse wasn't doing what they were supposed to be doing. It's their fault, not my fault. I've seen many people justify being unethical with money and dealing with finances because the government stinks. Well, they take too much of our taxes anyway. And I'm not talking about legal, taking, taking, using the system and taking advantage of every tax break that is, is there for us. We should do that. Right? It's being responsible. But I'm talking about twisting and turning and manipulating so our bottom line is better and we've created a system of justification for that. And then power. It's so easy for us to abuse power because pride gets in the way. And so as church leaders and as those who are nominated to be leaders today, hard conversations, difficult talks to go to someone and point out sin because they'll say, you're not perfect. I know what you did 13 years ago, right? And they'll begin to turn it on you instead of hearing the truth and saying, I'm a broken sinner. I need what you're giving me so I can glorify God more in my life. I've talked a lot about the devotion book I read every morning called New Morning Mercies. And I was reading it this morning. The sermon was already written. And I was like, whoa, i got to put this in there because this is so good. Paul Tripp writes, he says, We would like to think that nothing could lure us away from our loyalty to our Lord. We would like to think that our moral commitments are unshakable. We would like to think that what God says is wrong would not be attractive to us. We would like to think that we, were always, that we always think God's thoughts and that our desires are always in the right place. We would like to think all of these things. But the problem is that we all still have fickle hearts. 
So what we need most is not a change of location or relationship, but a fundamental rescue of heart. And that is exactly what God's grace in the person of the Holy Spirit provides for us. And so today, as in a minute, when we finish this passage, as we take communion, this is a time that God graciously gives us, that pushes us to say, I'm going to examine my heart. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit just do his work in my life. And so we're instructed to pause, examine yourself. That's a grace. That's grace that God gives you that opportunity. Every month we do it. I hope that today, as you take the Lord's Supper in just a minute, that you will seriously do that. And don't hide in shame. Run for help. As Stephen said, deacons, elders, pastors, pull somebody aside. Say, man, i got to talk to you. I've been living a double life. Pastors' wives, deacons' wives, elders' wives, pull one aside. I need you to pray with me. I've not been living the way I should live. And then here's the kicker, verse 7. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. He wants the body of Christ to be without reproach. People should not look at the church and say, I don't want your Jesus because I see how Christians are. Yesterday, went to the funeral of my 65-year-old neighbor who passed away. And the pastor at First Baptist was talking about Carrie's coming to faith back in February. And the cool thing was that Carrie, my next-door neighbor, told me about his coming to Christ and his baptism around that time. But I didn't know this. He told a story. He said one of Carrie's fishing buddies had put his faith in Christ. And while they were out fishing, he would tell Carrie, you need to put your faith in Jesus. You need to trust Jesus. You need to, you need to have a relationship with Jesus. And the pastor said that Carrie listened to him, but Carrie wasn't going to make a decision until first he started to he examine the life of this man who had recently come to Christ, who had put his faith in Christ. Because he wanted to see, is this guy real? Is this real or not? Well, it was real. And Carrie put his faith in Jesus. And he had no idea at that time that he was going to be dead just a few months later. He had no idea he had cancer. We have no guarantees for any future that we think we're entitled to. 70 years, 80 years. We're called to live for God's glory. Not just so we can be a great Christian, but so we can be the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Christ, to our community, to our neighbors, to our friends. So when they see us, they don't see John, they see Jesus at some level. Look, and I know your objection, because it's the same one I struggle with. It's like, I'm a hypocrite. Like, I don't always do what I say. I've shared this quote before, and I want to share it again today. It's by a guy named Kevin DeYoung. It's going to be on the screen. It says, The hypocrite is not the Christian who struggles against sin, fights against temptation, and keeps doing what is right, even though, even on his worst feelings days. He says, that person's a hero. Are you fighting sin? Are you battling it? Are you warring against it? 
Do you allow other people to identify those, that hypocrisy in your life and expose it so that you can allow Jesus to begin to renovate and change your heart? So our head, our heart, our hands. Our head. Let's know this for a fact. We, if we name the name of Christ, we represent Jesus, plain and simple. And you have no idea how many people are watching you in this community, your, and your neighbors, your friends, and your relatives who maybe live off somewhere else, but they know what you say and what you do. Do you represent him? And then your heart. As I said, hypocrisy always involves self-deception. And I think of verses like Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And it's the idea that this hypocrisy and this self-deceit is only exposed as the word of Christ takes root into our lives. As we allow the word of Christ to dwell or to be just full in us, richly dwell. And faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of Christ, that the word of Christ is just saturating our life, not just through sermons, although that's important, but through daily time in the word. And then hands. I talk about Fight Club, discipleship group all the time because you need the Holy Spirit working through others to help you see yourself with accuracy. You need people in your life who are going to help you when you start down that direction. You begin in your mind to begin to fantasize and to think about or to consider these things. And they just are, are little sparks that are pinging in your brain for a while. And then they work down into your heart and you begin to dwell upon them and fantasize about them. And it's not long before you're a complete, utter hypocrite. And you're pretending one thing in front of your family and your church. And in reality, you're something totally different. And it may or may not turn into something real. But nevertheless, it's every bit as much as of a sin. Your heart is what God cares about. Because out of your heart flows the issues of life. Your life flows from your heart. You correct your heart, your behavior will get corrected. What's your glory? Is your glory in some way, shape, or form, power, sex, and money? Or is your glory in Christ? And then those things can fall into their proper place. And they're used with the way that God intended for them to be used. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your practical instruction given to the church at Ephesus so many years ago, but every bit as applicable today as it was then. And Father God, as we move into a time of communion, a time to reflect upon your death, the cross, your body that was broken for us, God, pray, pray today, unlike any other time that we've had before you at the Lord's table, that today will be a day where we truly will allow the Holy Spirit to search us and to show us any wicked way that is in us. And God, we need the grace of your Holy Spirit because these things, we've justified them. We've made allowance for them. We've come up with systems of self-denial and only your word and only your body can expose those things. God, I pray you'll break us today so we can represent you and make you known.